Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm Steve Tibbet, and this episode is kind of different from most of the episodes in that we are looking back, looking back at um, different issues, but also different episodes of the podcast. And I'm, I've got a special guest with me today, Chris Stalker. And Chris is a campaigner and thinker about campaigning. He is a long-standing sort of collaborator of mine, but also an independent consultant. Um, he's worked for Oxfam and Amnesty International, along with other organizations. And he's currently an adjunct professor at NYU, New York University, uh, where he lectures on, I think, advocacy, social change, campaigning, that sort of thing. And yeah, we, we, we have a good chat, I think, about what the lessons are, what the patterns, what the trends are in campaigning and drawing on, on you know, five or six of the episodes that we talk about in, in, in this episode. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good discussion. He's a great guest. And I think there's lots to learn from this episode which is part of our relaunch here at uh, 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. And there'll be quite a lot of forthcoming episodes. And hopefully you will keep listening and leave some reviews and keep sharing and talking about these issues um, with your friends and colleagues. Here's Chris Stalker. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm here with Chris Stalker and we're talking about some of the episodes looking back in the podcast and, and sort of talking about, I guess, the, the lessons from those episodes or common patterns or reflections on them. Hi, Chris. Hello, Steve. How are you? So, yeah, I, I, just to kick off with, I just was wondering, I suppose... Were, were there any, is it possible to discern, do you think, looking at these diverse set of campaigns, you know, patterns or, you know, or, or, or common lessons that, 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 a, that a campaigner can use? Or, or is every campaign, you know, so individual that you can't really do that, do you think? Yeah, firstly, uh, thanks for inviting me to... Uh reflect and review across these uh, podcasts i've listened to almost all of them it's a really good strong body of work you should be very proud of it really great resource for for campaigners yeah uh, and more importantly what a great set of case studies and inspiring to hear from uh, the people that you interviewed so that was that's been that's been great and a pleasure and a privilege to listen to them and yeah, and I, I, I thought about that whilst I was listening to the podcast series. And it's one of those things, I think, where it's possible, is it, to have two competing thoughts in your head at the same time and try and hold them both. 
One is the absolute importance and significance of context. That each of these campaigns are different and operating in different socio-political and civil society contexts, and the number of different variables around complexity that there are around each of those, and they each should be, you know, thought about and understood and reflected in their own right. Nevertheless, I do think, you know, it's a human condition, isn't it? The idea that you look for things that are similar or patterns, characteristics that emerge, particularly, I think, around where campaigns have been effective, successful, and have made an impact. And I thought, yeah, there's, there's some patterns, I think, that emerge, aren't there, that are common across across them. I was struck, for example, by the extent to which campaigners and activists have a clearly identified objective or goal that they're trying to achieve and recognize very early on in the campaign that this will be, and you know, some of your interviewees use the word, that this will be a struggle a struggle for justice, a struggle for rights. And even if it's inconvenient to policymakers and decision makers in regressive political contexts, then this is an issue that's right for us to organise around and call for change, demand change, or resist negative changes. So that was that was one thing. I think the other thing that was interesting was how many of them are built around a particular geographical context, but then also look for being part of international uh, movements, building partnerships and allies in a transnational way. Often, and we you know we saw that in the. Uh, calls for a COVID inquiry, people's vaccine. We saw that on suffragettes and the women's vote and and certainly in the anti-slavery, the abolition campaign. So so those. And then just a couple of other things which perhaps a little bit more sort of tangential in a way, but the, uh, the degree to which there was calling for structural change and not just incremental change and you know that idea that there's a a demand for system change which helps build you know social and social movements and so on and an acknowledgement that that will take time it was one of the absolutely common themes wasn't it across all of the podcasts i think certainly the ones i listened to was the degree to which People were needing to invest in this over over a long time, and it wasn't going to take a two or three year time cycle for a meaningful, sustainable, transformational change to to happen. And then one, actually, one other final thing was around courage and bravery, um, suffragettes, uh, anti-apartheid struggle that you talked about with Kumi Naidu and Peter Tatchell. Um, as an individual. Those are some of the themes. I mean, I think particularly I'd like to pick up on this theme of 
of persistence and you know some of the, some of the figures that we that you mentioned particularly you know Kubi and I do and 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 Peter Tatchell you know they, they are long term campaigners but not everyone can can be quite as committed as they are or at least mm. you know you know devote their life to campaigning uh, you know and so I do I do pretty much always ask my guests what is it that keeps you going because they all seem to have a degree of persistence or at least the campaigns that they're involved in you know a, a lot of them as you say keep going for a long time and then time you know it takes time to to bring about change mm. but is, is there something that ca- campaigners can think about when keeping going that you would you know that you would take from those or or other campaigns that you've worked on you know what what what, what is it that people can draw on to get because i suppose you know there's a danger with the sort of you know with with new forms of media coming in all the time and and shorter and shorter attention spans that people expect things to be done very quickly but how do you how do you keep going yeah and it's it it's called a struggle for a reason isn't it <laughs> and i think you know my experience and you know then speaking to others on this issue is that it's about the injustices or the human rights violations that you see on an ongoing basis and that inspires and demands a response from from us i i'm you know it's interesting this kind of short termism i think that has to some extent infected you know the big international uh, ngo campaigning organizations that might have a campaign for two or three years and then end it because there are other internal motivations to move on to the next thing and, and it's and it's hard isn't it i've always been struck by that phrase and i don't know who said it i should, perhaps should have looked it up before i joined you today but the this saying of ngos and civil society organizations tend to overestimate their influence in the short term, but underestimate their influence and impact in the long term. And I think that's that's important. And then I think staying connected for us, you know, in, based in the north, being you know, middle-aged white men, <laughs> Steve, is, you know, staying connected to uh, activists, particularly in the global south, particularly you know, those that aren't and haven't had the same level of privileges that we've had that are continuing to struggle for rights and for justice and for transformational change. You know, I had the uh, privilege of going to South Africa in February, for example, and uh, for an evaluation and, and interviewed a number of different community-based activists that were campaigning against local mining east of Johannesburg, and they were putting themselves at great risk, personal risk. You know, there would even been personal threats and, you know, their lives are, are at risk. And we, we know that there are environmental uh, or corporate protesters that are assassinated every week. I think, was it Global Witness that said there were four deaths each week? of those kinds of activists. So, put, you know, being connected to those kind of inspiring people is, is, is um, 
ensures that you, you know, continue the struggle and the fight and you look for small gains and victories where, where you can, where you can get them. And, you know, you're in it for the long haul. And, you know, this, this idea that change isn't linear and it zigs and it zags, you know, I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to that idea as well, you know, and we know, don't we, from our experience, good campaigns are over the longer term until goals and objectives are achieved and we'll have peaks and troughs of capacity and resources and activity. So it's not as if you're sustaining a high level of intensity all the time. I think it's natural and good. The other thing that sort of relates to that, which I think came out particularly in, it came out as a, as a specific point in the Surface Against Sewage episode, but also European Super League and, and Peter Tatchell, as well as some of the others, is the idea that, you know, you, you can have the energy, if you like, sapped out of you by, by being tied up in, yeah. in, in, you know, by processes, you know, or, or the, even worse, you can become co-opted by government or by, you know, by your, by your target and, and get, but, that, that, you know, I think as it relates to this point, it's, it's really about, you know, kicking it into the long grass, keep keeping you occupied. You think you're making a difference, but actually they're just keeping you occupied uh, by, by inviting you to endless consultations. Yeah. Or did you, do you, you know, how do you guard against that? Or, you know, obviously all of these people were aware of it, but it, it must be difficult sometimes to, to, to avoid, you know, because it was interesting, again, listening to Peter Tatchell, he, you know, he did say, I re-listened to that episode, it's, you know, the, he does talk to government and he does talk to the authorities, you know, that's his starting point. But you have to have a sort of limit as well at which you are willing to engage. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Hugo Tacholm from uh, Surface Against Sewage, that, that interview, and that absolutely is what struck me among a few things, but one thing was that really sophisticated understanding they seem to have around uh, understanding power and motives and incentives and you know, very explicit about thinking about how to neutralise or minimise the influence of the opposition uh, and potential, potential blockers. I thought that was, that was really Good, and I, and I think what we've seen, not just in these podcasts, but more generally too, is um, the response from policymakers, governments, different ministries within within government, parliament, and power, particularly the private sector, particularly the private sector, have got very sophisticated in understanding how to co-opt civil society organisations and uh, engage them in cumbersome, quite labour-intensive negotiations or consultations, some of which may be, uh, may be meaningless. And I think that's a really big, really big challenge for uh, NGOs to be, to have an analysis that ensures that, you, want, you know, we're not co-opted. And the stakes are so high, aren't they? I mean, I, you know, just thinking about, you know, the number of intersecting crises on inequality, on the economy, 
obviously public health uh, recently on race and climate and global warming. And that re- that requires a kind of sophisticated response, not just in thinking across those issues and how we organize in social movements and networks, but also an understanding of not being co-opted by laborious, sometimes international processes. I just did an evaluation, for example, I just did an evaluation for a medium-sized international NGO, not based in either the US or the UK. And their mission is around transformational change. However, a large part of their capacity and resources is going into UN UN processes, UN Declaration of the Rights of the Peasants. They work on climate change, so obviously the UNFCCC and COP. And how, as a really good, actually, and effective advocacy and campaigning organization, how you try to be both of those things. A change agent that's seeking transformational and system change, whilst at the same time being sucked into bureaucratic UN very slow uh, processes, particularly if you're trying to be impact, particularly trying to be impact driven. Let me see many, many of my clients get bogged down into UN processes, slightly more benign perhaps than some, some other processes where there's yeah. a you know, deliberate attempt to tie you up, but, but no more, no less time. In fact, some of these processes, as we know, have gone on for decades and nothing much happens. But it's quite, a, quite alluring as a campaigner. You get invited to Geneva or New York or wherever it may be, and you spend you know, a week you know, in meetings and it's you, you know, not nice surroundings. And it is quite easy to get sucked in. You feel like you are making a difference. Uh, you know, and it's, I'm not saying those because some of those UN processes have been very successful, but others have really been very tortuous and, um, uh, and difficult. Yeah, can I just say as well, just on that, because this, this is a question back to you, if I may, as well, which I think partly what's being played out here as well is um, the distinction between incremental change that might happen through you know, a bipartisan model working across the aisle with different political parties, as opposed to uh, transformational system change, which where that is less likely to happen. And I, I, I wonder if that's part of the part of the challenge here about that, you know, the degree to which different parts of civil society, sometimes working on the same issue, have differences in what they're trying to achieve and when by, and what that might mean for engaging in the longer term. Yeah, I mean, and you can see amongst the examples we've given, some of those objectives are very clear and quite short term. Stop the European Super League. That's what it says in the tin. It's, it's, you know, it was very successful in a very short space of time. But those organisations do also have a longer term objective, which is to wrest back control of the clubs from from yeah. their billionaire owners. And so, yeah, I think it, you know, you, you, you can have these sort of clear short-term objectives that, that at least contribute or at least, you know, don't stop your mission, your long-term mission. But, you know, s- some of them, you know, work in, in, you know, in slightly more uncompromising ways. Whereas others, you know... Uh, 
I think, uh, you know, willing to sort of play the game a little bit more. I was wondering if you had any reflections about how those those campaign or well, campaigning has changed over time. And, you know, a couple of the examples that you've looked at, I think that this one on the, the abolition of the slave trade and, and also the suffragettes, you know, those are historical campaigns, obviously. Uh, and then you've got these sort of more more contemporary campaigns which which operate in a slightly different way. But do you see big differences in campaigning over the centuries, over the decades, or, or are those really differences of style rather than substance, do you think? <laughs> wow, yes, good question. Good nice, question. easy question. Yeah, for thank you. you, yeah. I was. I think I've been struck by, by a couple of things. I'm not going to answer the question directly, actually. I'm going to come at it from a slightly different angle. But one of the the richness of diversity that's in these podcasts were interesting in so many ways. But I was, you know, one of the examples that I think that's useful to draw on. What does it mean, and what are the implications? Was the uh, the Better Together campaign in advance of the referendum in in Scotland, and I was struck by that in the sense that it stands alone to some degree, I think, doesn't it? Which is the other podcast campaign examples were, and you've given them what the historical ones there were about calling for structural systemic change, whereas that campaign was calling for a retention of the status quo. I thought that was quite interesting, and that, nevertheless, still, I think some degree of sort of common uh, patterns or, or or features you can still apply. I mean, we might come onto it, but things like framing, yeah, yeah. framing narratives. I mean, the, the other the other thing that struck me about that campaign was the the importance of context and you know the political context specifically at the time perhaps, you know, was all important in that campaign. And also in the in the um, European Super League, COVID families. So, you know, I was, I was asking myself the question, would would the Better Together campaign have, have, have won if Boris Johnson had been Prime Minister of, of the UK at the time? Uh, and w- or would, you know, would his presence have actually pushed... Um, Scotland into being into into voting for independence because we know that he's not a popular figure, to say to say the least, in Scotland. You know those sorts of factors. Mm. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. and and you know, I was speaking yesterday to a podcast that hasn't been released yet, uh, or may not when this goes out, but ab- about um, equal marriage and equally on that issue, you know, to to win. To, to win the vote on equal marriage in Parliament, it, it did rely on a certain specific context, a, a coalition government and a particular, you know, a set of Conservatives in power that were amenable to that change at that time. Plus, you know, public opinion moving in that direction, a global context where other countries were also starting to allow equal marriage, gay marriage, uh, you know, um, um, same-sex marriage, depending on your term. So... Yeah, so I think there are, you know, you can see these these parallels. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's right. And I think there's absolutely some patterns and characteristics for us to, to reflect on and, and, and learn from. 
I'm not. I, this is a slightly superficial answer to your big question. But it's given me a bit of time to think about it. Thanks. <laughs> Which is, uh, I'm, I wonder whether there's sort of been three waves of what we mean by campaigning, social movements, advocacy, and the first, the third one. Sorry, is starting to resemble the first one. And what I mean by that is. I think you and I and our peers tend to be a little bit seduced by what, with hindsight, might have been a reasonable definition of a golden period of international NGO campaigning and advocacy, let's say the last 10 years of the last century and the first few years of this century, so sort of 1990 to 2005, 2010, uh, maybe, maybe through 2015, actually, the, the uh, ending of the Millennium Development Goals which helped provide a frame, I think, for, for advocacy. And that's the sort of that second, that second phase. Phase one, if we think about the suffragettes and we think about the anti-slavery movement and even then, you know, the anti-apartheid movement, very much driven by participants that were the rights holders and the beneficiaries themselves. And that was so powerful and so, you know, so compelling. You know, it was it was uh, it was women fighting for the boat. Uh, it was South African activists in the struggle against apartheid. And then this, I wonder if we're now seeing. If you're asking about trends and who knows what the future holds, <laughs> but whether this kind of third phase. So if this is where I'm going with this, the third resembling the first, is back to emerging chaotic, in some cases, divergent uh, social movements, activist networks that are rights holders and beneficiaries themselves, that are absolutely committed to participatory democracy and trying to connect it to representative democracy. So that's one theory I've just thought about now as you've asked the question about trends over the last 150 years but um there's there's probably many other features and characteristics that people could draw on in relation to how advocacy and campaigning has has evolved over that time but i'm struck by the resemblance of this current and future phase and and um how it does look and feel different to what we experienced in the in the 90s and 2000s but uh, all of that has a question mark at the end of it, Steve. Well, perhaps a good place to stop for a short break. We'll be back uh, with, with Chris Stalker. We're back uh, with Chris Dawker and we're talking about some of the um, lessons and trends from the, the podcast um, looking back over the last you know few episodes. And Chris, we were talking before the break a little bit about social movements and, and, and 
One thing that I try to do in many of the podcasts is to pick guests that are either from organisations or from communities that are directly affected by the issues that they campaign on. You know, the so-called lived experience. So how important is it, do you think, for a campaign to have that lived experience? Does it make it necessarily more authentic or more more effective um and and you know perhaps you know some of the different models there covid families you know that 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 has a model of you know that the, 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 the organization is of the lived people for, that, are, that, are, that were affected and bereaved by covid but they they have a professional campaigner sitting alongside them to sort of guide them through the system as it were you know, are there models that work better than others? Do you think what, what what's important in terms of having an authentic authenticity to your campaigning? I think it's it's vital. You know, really fundamental to any legitimate and accountable campaign, piece of policy advocacy that it's driven by rights holders, beneficiaries, those with a lived experience. You know, there's this. Slightly simplistic, but I think it, it kind of works. Idea of, you know, the three types of, of advocacy. Uh, advocacy for, advocacy uh, with, like partnership models, and advocacy by rights holders, beneficiaries, those with lived experiences. Those that have a voice and agency and in, in directly engaging with with decision makers, policy makers and, and those with those with power. I think it adds as well to this other thing that we talked about in the last question around framing and narratives. And I was struck by the podcasts, how many of them really talked about that, well, didn't necessarily use those words, but essentially was about um, framing and narratives and stories and how compelling and impactful they are with uh, with those uh, with those in power, even to the extent where, in a, in a couple of examples, even more important than data, facts, evidence, which is probably a whole other podcast about the relationship between in in the twenty first century between those two things: data, evidence, and facts, and narratives, framing, and and stories. But absolutely, I think in all of the work that we're seeing and you picked it out in, in your podcasts the trend is towards participation inclusivity voice agency and uh, those that are affected running the campaign and being the decision makers in relation to how the campaign is it's adapted yeah i think that i mean it's interesting that the framing point and i was reflecting on the fact that the the Scottish referendum, the Better Together campaign, used a framing that was, in fact, they deliberately chose a framing that was less fun than the other side because, you know, they they were sort of leaning into their strengths, as it were, mm. which they felt was, you know, to be sober and, and serious and, you know, they're, they're making a serious decision, whereas the other side was more fun and, you know, had the, the they had a, a much more sober politician leading their side, whereas... The other side had, in a way, a, you know, a more charismatic figure leading theirs, um, and 
so it's not always the case, is it, that you know that the that the side that with you know with the better the better looking side, as it were, uh, is the winner. But I think what what it, what it but it is important to get the framing right. And I think you do see campaigns, yeah, as you said, leaning far too much towards just looking at evidence and data. And unfortunately, the, the way that power works is. You know, evidence and data is not enough to persuade those with power to to give up their position or uh, to win a campaign. And it, it seems to me that you do need you need that framing. You also need the stories. And yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, again, the the, the podcast that I recorded yesterday, looking at equal marriage, I mean, they used a framing of sort of you know love as the sort of central framing in their argument about why it was right to have equal marriage yeah two people in love should be allowed to get married and have that commitment whereas i think they had assumed perhaps at some point that they were going to use a framing of you know legal challenge you know this is you know it should be and and to go down that route and actually it doesn't always work so i do think yeah i do think framing is really important yeah great that's a great example and I think it might even be worse than you've just described in relation to the data, evidence, and facts don't always matter. <laughs> I think it might be worse than that. And I, you know, I was struck by your podcasts about they're largely drawn, I think it's fair to say, from a liberal, progressive, centre, centre-left perspective of, of change. And I, keep thinking there's a lot we can learn from let's call it the other side and you've mentioned the referendum i mean i very interesting to do some sort of analysis of, of testing around the 2016 european union membership referendum yeah which i have thought about i have thought about doing that yeah it's it is a bit of a challenge for me well emotion, emotionally well, I, I'm not sure I want to sit down with um, Dominic Cummings or, um, you know, a, a chief strategist for the for the successful Brexit campaign. But maybe I should. I was thinking, and and there are other there are other elements on the right who, you know, potentially have something, you know, some important lessons, and I don't think that they spent too much time worrying about you know, borrowing the clothes of those on the left that, and learning from that experience. So I think it, you know, I think it's, it's probably, an, it would certainly be an interesting conversation, but I... Yeah, I mean, I'm just on, on the same, from here as well, I mean, I worked um, a few years ago with a woman, brilliant woman at Georgetown University in Washington who, who was writing a book about social change and she'd interviewed uh, senior people from the NRA. National Rifle Association, in order to do exactly what you're trying to do. What are the lessons learned from uh, around how change happens? And um, yeah, I think there's something valuable uh, in it for us. And um, yeah, let's talk about it. I, I wanted to just uh, alight on the European Super League campaign just briefly. It's a bit of a not, not particularly connected, but we've been but uh, 
that that seems to me an unusual campaign or maybe what it what it says is something about momentum and and you know being at the right place at the right time but certainly momentum this was an incredibly quick campaign yeah. victory 70 less than 72 hours the people proposing the european super league capitulated didn't they and the other thing about it is they didn't put out any sort of they didn't really put up a defense they said this is what we're going to do and then there was a sort of real outpouring of anger and emotion and but also coordinated campaigning against that proposal and then they just said oh we're not doing it then and and that was there wasn't yeah. really anything else yeah. <laughs> what do you take from that and if anything is there i mean it you know, is there? Is it just a sort of one-off, or can we learn anything from that experience? Yeah, I and mean, I, was, there was two or three things I think that struck me about about that. And again, great podcast with uh, Joe. I think Joe Blot. Yeah, really impressive. And yeah, I thought it was unique in your podcast set in the sense that I was it was part of the nature of the campaign, wasn't it, and the context, but. Um, I couldn't really understand, and maybe you know better than me, and, and certainly Joe does. But who, who the who the who the target was, who the decision maker was, you know, all of that uh, training that we've done over the years, and that understanding that we've had about uh, campaigning strategy is be clear about who your target is and who the decision maker is. And I couldn't really work out who it was in relation to the European Super League. Was it the owners of the clubs? Was it the you know the federations, UEFA and FIFA, and so on, and that. And I think that partly plays to the diffuse governance nature of football, right? Doesn't it? I think to some degree, who 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 does control twenty first century? Very football. opaque. It's a very opaque decision making. Yeah, but it also, I think, also the thing I take from it, which I thought was quite inspiring, really, was that you know, actually, who's got the power? We we always. We always talk about the powerful and, you know, that these these billionaires that are controlling, in this case, the, you know, the sport of football. But actually, what, what proved to be the case was that, you know, when people organise and they get lined up behind something, they're actually, they have got the power. Yeah. Well, they've got the potential to move things, to change things or to stop things. It's often easier, isn't it, to stop things than it is to get something, win something, transform something, uh, and that's that's certainly one 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 theme I think of campaigning in general, not just these podcasts, but and also it, the, it is quite the framing. Yeah, yeah, so the, sorry mm. to interrupt, but the framing aspect as well around tradition and community, and this is your club, and that you know that brings in kind of participation and support in order to to oppose it. The uh, the other couple of things that struck me about it was that, as you say, the the speed and the pace that they were able to respond, and that is a that's a common theme across the podcasts. I think that you know these effective campaigns, they're both long term, but they're also very agile and nimble, short, medium term, depending on what's what's happening, and, and you know, very willing to adapt their strategy and, and tactics, and then. The third and final thing about it was it would not have happened in the way that it did with that pace and that speed if there hadn't if it hadn't been part of an ongoing campaign around the Oak Club's ownership, which you mentioned. Uh, yes, and and you know, despite 
you know, what we think about the rivalry in football, those supporters groups all in touch with each other and they speak regularly. And that's yeah. quite encouraging, I think. It was. So just perhaps as a final uh, sort of question or subject, you know, I was, I was wondering about what all of this tells us about the future. And it's obviously, you know, it's incredibly difficult to predict the future, in, if you like, in normal times, if there is such a thing. But it seems all the mm. more unpredictable at the moment for various mm. reasons. But can we, can we say anything about the, you know, the, the trends and, and try and say something about, you know, what's going to work in the future, what may not work or, or indeed, you know, um, what, what may, may become more sort of popular as a form of campaigning in the future? Yeah. I mean, I, instinctively, I want to say I don't know. I think that's important to say. I, um, you know, when I when I when I teach NYU, I often say to the students, "You, you young people, have got much more idea about how change happens than, than I have. I don't really know anymore." <laughs> all, all I can, I suppose, all we can do, Steve, is just point to some of the things that we're seeing that appear to be effective uh, across issues across contexts across countries and we've touched on i thought just on a couple of them already i think about framing and narratives and stories and then the second one being i think you know this idea of long-term sustained pressure and tenacity and engagement but also agile and nimble um and then i i thought about two or three others that I think are worth reflecting on and seeing if they're relevant to how people are thinking about their own campaigns and advocacy. One of them is, I sense to you, a kind of movement of, of space away from the national level to the subnational level. Community organising, local level, here in the US, you know, certainly state level advocacy and campaigning is crucial, whether it's on gun control or women's right to choose, affordable housing for low-income families. You know, there's just three examples. All of those changes are going to be happening. That, that campaigning is happening at state uh, and, uh, and district level. So that's, I think, a, a, a sort of third one. Then there's a fourth one, I think, which you touched on this a little bit. And, of course, in the podcast, the uh, Bereaved Families for Justice, COVID-19, uh, judicial review, so greater emphasis on legal approaches. So, you know, using human rights lawyers, human rights defenders as part of a, as part of a strategy where it's appropriate. And that, is, again, is something that I saw that was effective in in South Africa, particularly where politics is weak and the judiciary, the independence of the judiciary is relatively, relatively strong. And then the, the last one, which we've touched on a few times, but I just think it is worth re-emphasizing, is the significance, absolutely, of building social movements, activist networks, intersectionally across issues, climate justice, me Too, Black Lives Matter, Women's Rights Choose, 
and how, but not as an end in itself, but how how that participatory democracy is connected to more formal representative democracy, I think is the probably the key challenge on, in an ongoing wave, I think in Europe and in the US anyway at least, which is how to connect those emergent social movements with formal party politics. And so, yeah, I think that's, there's some of the things that I think we're, we're seeing, but I, I'd be suspicious of someone who claimed that they said this is what you need to do. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that. These are just things that I think that look really interesting and exciting. No, I think those, those are really good reflections, Chris. And thanks so much for your time today. It's been fascinating talking about this with you and, and going back a bit, delving deep so yes thank thanks so much no thank you steve thanks for the opportunity really appreciate it and keep up the good work <laughs>